0: So, Chaya, maybe just begin by telling me the story from from the start.
2: Okay, so I grew up in New York. Uh, I grew up in Long Island. I was a twin. My parents were conservadoxin. Now, that means that we had milchik dishes and we had meat dishes and then we also had trayf dishes and paper plates for when my mother wanted to eat Chinese food that wasn't kosher. (laughs) She really, really liked uh, sweet and sour pork. (laughs) Hey,
0: I'm Mishi Harman and welcome back to Israel's Story, or Sipur Israeli here on Vox Tablet. Usually we'll have a few stories around a theme, but today we're devoting the entire hour to a single story. Chaya's Story The first time I met Chaya ben Baruch was in her tiny flat in this huge Soviet-style apartment block in Tzfat, which is an ultra-Orthodox, borough park meets Woodstock kind of town in the north of Israel. We had talked on the phone a few times, but I really didn't know what to expect. When she opened the door, I walked into a pretty typical Haredi home, super sparse, little kids running all over the place, a woman with a head covering, a man in black with a patchy long beard, a few pictures of rabbis hanging on the walls. But there's actually not a single part of this story, or this family, or Chaya, which is typical. Let's go back to Chaya, growing up in New York. Act 1, Sea Otters. Despite the occasional sweet and sour pork at home, Chaya's family was actually pretty traditional. She attended a yeshiva, a religious high school, where her mom taught. But when she graduated, Chaya, whose name at the time was Enid, kind of rebelled. She didn't do what her mom had hoped or what was expected of a girl with that upbringing. You know, getting married to the Saperstein's lawyer son, having a bunch of kids, making potato kugels for the kiddish at shul. She just knew that wasn't for her. So instead, she moved as far away as she possibly could.
2: I decided that I was going to go learn in Alaska. Uh, that's the place where the Eskimos live.
0: Not that many people just up and go to Alaska, especially not from Enid's community. It's far, it's freezing, it's dark half the year. But Enid wanted to become a biologist, and specifically, she wanted to study sea otters.
2: What really attracted me to the sea otters was the fact that the sea otter mom takes care of her baby for a whole year inside the water. And I knew moms that didn't take care of their babies for a whole year outside of the water, so I really wanted to learn about this animal.
0: Enid enrolled in the University of Alaska, Fairbanks, and that's where she met Chet, or Charles, her first husband.
2: He was a university professor in psychology.
0: By this time, Enid had basically left the world of Judaism.
2: My family was pretty upset that I married somebody who wasn't Jewish. I actually had an uncle who told me that I was better off buried than I was married.
0: Oh, wow. What did you think when he said that to you?
2: I didn't think that was totally fair. <laughs> Despite the lack
0: of support from home, Enid continued on with her life. She and her husband had three children.
2: And uh, unfortunately, then we got divorced. I never expected to get divorced. And then Stan came into my life. I say Mr. Blue Eyes came into my life.
0: Stan, that same man in black clothes and a patchy beard, is sitting at the dining room table, flipping through some old photo albums. I imagine that if Alaska were a person that person would look just like Stan. He's tall and burly, but so soft-spoken that you have to take a step closer just to hear what he says. In his previous life in Alaska, he was a professional salmon fisherman. And in all the pictures he shows us, he's hiking in the middle of wild nature, wearing plaid shirts and cut-off jeans. He gets to a picture of his hometown.
3: This is what's called the Goldstream Valley. It's in the central part of Alaska. It's where I spent most of my young life and this is 96 wow. miles south of the Arctic Circle. And uh, this is where I grew up. Wow. I grew up in such a small town that I never met knowingly a Jewish person. <laughs> but I was born into a very religious family, a, very, a Catholic family. My parents were very Orthodox. And so that le- that gave all of us children a very strong connection to religion in general.
0: So you grew up going to church every Sunday? and
3: right. Very, very orthodox. Even in the coldest day of the winter, we would go. And then like many young people, I kind of went off the derech, and I did a lot of adventures.
2: Actually, Stan was a student of my first husband.
0: Wait, I, so your second husband was a student
3: of your first husband?
2: My second <laughs> husband, yes, was a student of my first husband, but I didn't have anything to do with him before.
3: <laughs> I was in university and there were, one night there was a a New Year's party and, and I was standing in the kitchenette and opened out into the salon. And on the other side of the salon, this young woman walks in. I'd never seen before. I didn't know who she was. And I thought, I don't know who this young woman is, but she's exceedingly beautiful. And uh, not just, it wasn't just her physical beauty, but it was also I could sense that she had some kind of quality about her that was very, very unique and special. And that's Chaya. Unfortunately, she was already married. So she wasn't available. (laughs) So I went my way, and she went her way, and then some years went by. And um, I traveled back to my hometown, where I grew up and where she had been living. And unbeknownst to me, she and her husband, her husband had separated. I didn't know that. So I walked into the public library, and I I, I hear a woman's voice behind me. And I turn around, and it's Chaya. And she said, uh, well, I just thought you'd like to know. My husband and I are not together anymore. And so I thought... <laughs>
2: I'm sure you did <laughs> like to
0: know that. <laughs> I, didn't,
3: I didn't say this, but in my mind I said, ah, this is the woman I'm going to marry.
2: So we started to talk... And then we started to go out. And I knew that I was falling head over heels in love with him. All the years that I'd been with my first husband, something in my heart had closed up. And something was definitely opening up. And I just, I didn't want it to hurt. And I remember I said to him, if this relationship isn't going anywhere, permanent, just get out of my life right now. Because I didn't want to introduce him to my children. And I didn't want my heart to be broken. I think we we're only just two weeks into the relationship. Two weeks. Two weeks into the relationship. <laughs>
0: so, what did he say when you said that to him?
2: Um, he said he wanted to marry me. <laughs> <laughs> that was in June, and uh, and in December we got married. He um, said to me that he wanted three children. I said to him, I have three children. She said, yes. I also want three children of my own. I'm happy to have your children, but I also want three children of my own. So then we had Ari, and after that um, we had Danielle, and then I miscarried twice. My father had died, and a month after that, Stan had lost his father. And I remember going into the forest in Alaska. I was basically going to talk to God. (laughs) In Hebrew, we call it hit bodadut. And so I went out into the woods, and I screamed at the top of my lungs. I've had enough. I can't handle anymore. But obviously, God thought something else, because the next pregnancy, I was nauseous for 16 weeks. I had to have uh, um, IVs, infusions. Every three days, a nurse would come. She would put it in, and then I would take it out, kind of a thing. And the joke was that this kid had given me enough cirrus, enough problems, until he was at least 18 years old. <laughs> but that's not exactly what happened. Um, all of my prayers were for a live baby. I didn't pray for a healthy baby or, um, you know, in, in Hebrew we usually say, shaleim v'chule v'chule. I didn't pray for that. I just wanted a live baby because I had had these two miscarriages. And for me, I lost two babies.
0: In the beginning of November 1991, when the snow in Alaska was already starting to barricade their door, Enid gave birth to Ankur, her sixth child, and third with Stan.
2: And when the baby was born... I saw that his ears were kind of folded over.
0: Enid had heard that that was one of the signs of Down syndrome.
2: I think more than anything else, it was one of those mother glitches where I just kind of felt it intuitively.
0: She turned to the midwife.
2: So I just asked her, I said, Susan, do you think he's got Down syndrome? And she looked at his hand, and he didn't have the typical simian increase that kids with Down syndrome have, and his muscle tone was actually pretty good. He was actually nursing. So she said, you know, just take him home and love him. And, you know, we'll see what happens.
0: We've all probably seen or known people with Down syndrome. The syndrome, which was first described by a British physician, John Langdon Down, in 1866, is characterized by a whole range of physical and cognitive disabilities.
2: A person with Down syndrome has an extra chromosome. So instead of having 46 chromosomes in every cell, they have 47 um, What happens then is oftentimes 40% of these kids have problems with their hearts, they have problems with their digestive tracts, some of them have pointy eyes, some of them have flat nose, some of them have um, most of the time very, very straight hair, and they have a finger or a toe that's a little crooked.
0: They also have compromised immune systems and a whole host of other health issues. But on top of all this, most people with Down syndrome have low IQs, ranging from what's considered mild to severe intellectual disability. For centuries, people thought that you can't teach children with Down syndrome, just train them.
2: A lot of people put their kids in institutions. They don't have a father. They don't have a mother. The staff is continually changing. And they don't have any expectations of them. And so, so they act like whatever the expectation was. If, if I had been put in an institution when I was first born, first of all, I don't think I would be alive today. And second of all, I'd be a mifagera too. I'd be retarded as well.
0: Today, of course, the whole attitude towards the syndrome has changed. We know that it isn't hereditary or, as people used to think, contagious. And with the advances in testing during the pregnancy, the prevalence of Down syndrome has gone way down. Statistics in Israel show that about 1 in 800 pregnancies is of a baby with Down syndrome. Officially, about 95% of those are terminated, but actually the number is probably higher. Most of the Down syndrome babies that are born come from families from the more traditional segments of the population, Bedouins and and the ultra-Orthodox, who either get tested less less are more opposed to abortions, or both. The thing is, Enid actually did get tested, and the results came back completely normal. So how is it that the screenings that you did during your pregnancy didn't show that he was going to have Down syndrome?
2: Well, because at this point in the game, the alpha-fetoprotein test has an 80% accuracy rate. So I was in the 20% that wasn't accurate. I also did an ultrasound in the 21st week, and they didn't find anything. But to me, it was, a, it was a miracle. I bonded to my baby. I didn't bond to the syndrome, and I think that made all the difference. I didn't have what doctor saying to me, oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Ben-Baruch, you know, you have this child that's not going to be able to do this, and all he's going to be able to do is, you know, work in McDonald's or that kind of a thing. It's just, for me, it was totally different. And what happened was, a week later, my midwife came and she checked the baby, and she heard a heart murmur and it turned out he was going to need open-heart surgery. My whole prayer throughout the whole pregnancy was a live baby. Here I was, holding this baby that I would bonded to and loved, and he was going to need open-heart surgery, and I didn't know if he was going to live.
0: The experts in Alaska weren't set up to perform the complicated procedure on a tiny heart, so Enid flew with Encore to Portland, Oregon. After six hours in the operating room, the doctors finally came out and told her that the surgery was a success. Four days later, they were back in Fairbanks, and slowly Enid and Stan got used to their new life, taking care of a child with Down syndrome. When Encore was five months old, Enid went to a conference for parents with special needs children. There were counselors, social workers, professionals sitting at booths and handing out flyers, and, of course, many parents who shared their experiences. Just by chance, Enid heard a mom tell her story. She had had twins with cystic fibrosis, who both died when they were teenagers. When she was clearing out their room, she found a journal they had written together.
2: The mother said, wow, it was so good that one had the other. They didn't go through the sickness alone.
0: Most people, I guess, would just be really touched hearing that mom tell her sad story. But Enid, you're probably starting to realize, isn't most people.
2: So I'm a twin, and I went back from this conference, and I told Stan, we've got to adopt another baby with Down syndrome so that Encore won't be alone. And I think he swallowed twice, and he said to me, well, that's okay, but but can we... Just get over open-heart surgery first. <laughs> I was really chutzpidek. I wanted somebody else's kids so that my child's life could be better.
3: I thought it was a wonderful idea. Really? I, yeah, I thought, I <laughs> said, wish I'd had that idea because huh,
0: it was brilliant. As far out as that idea sounds, it actually makes a lot of sense. Enid basically wanted to adopt a little friend for Encore. Someone who'd know what he was going through, what he was feeling. But not everyone supports that approach. One of its strongest opponents is Professor Ruven Feuerstein, a world expert on Down syndrome, who devoted his entire life to the exact opposite idea. I spoke with him in his office in Jerusalem just a few months before he passed away this spring at the age of 92. I asked him whether he believed it helped children with Down syndrome to live and grow up together with other children with Down
4: syndrome. No. The No,
5: absolutely not. Children with Down syndrome need a heterogeneous environment, a talking environment. They need to be with regular children who play differently so that they can end up reaching much greater achievements than they were expected to. For many, many long years, I've been fighting against the attempt to homogenize them, to put them with other people with Down syndrome.
0: But Enid was sure that this was the right thing to do for Encore.
2: This was my baby. He needed me. And I was going to fly to the moon if I needed to so that his life would be better. And for me, that was the answer.
0: They started the process of adoption, meeting with social workers, welfare officers, the whole thing.
2: There's a Down Syndrome exchange in New York. Anybody who wants to give up a baby with Down Syndrome, anybody who wants to get a baby with Down Syndrome, you go through the paperwork. And exactly on Ankar's first birthday, a family came to us from Anchorage. A mother, a father, a grandmother, a four-year-old brother, and a nine-day-old baby girl, blue eyes, blonde hair. With Down Syndrome. With Down Syndrome. Mm -hmm. And the family came to us. We thought they were just checking us out. They came at 10 o'clock. In 2.30 in the afternoon, they left her in my arms, and they left, and she remained. And I'll never forget the four-year-old screamed at the top of his lungs when he realized that his baby sister was going to be left, and she wasn't going home with them. Don't leave my baby. It was just really, really hard to hear that.
0: How did you feel being the person that was taking the baby?
2: Well, on the one side, I was this chutzpanit that wanted this baby for my child to have a better life. And on the other hand, it was just so sad that this little boy was not going to have a little sister. He didn't expect his parents to leave his baby sister, and and we certainly didn't expect them to leave her in our arms, but that's what happened. We called her Karen. Her biological mother had nursed her, and this was November in Alaska. I didn't have any materna in the house whatsoever and she certainly wasn't going to take a bottle. So um, I started nursing her and Ankar was jealous and so he wanted to nurse too and so I just nursed the two of them together. And actually I have some very unsanua how do you say Sanua pictures? Unmodest pictures that I remember taking that they're actually holding hands while both of them are nursing. <laughs>
0: you remember, came to Alaska to study the sea otters and their mothering patterns. And the more she tells her story, the more that makes sense, because sea otters, as she said before, have an unbelievably strong sense of maternal responsibility.
4: The sea otter, they have a very good bond between the mother and the the calf.
0: That's Dr. Aviad Sheinin, the chairman of the IMMRAC, the Israel Marine Mammal Research and Assistance Center.
4: The mother takes care of all the needs of the young calf, especially food. Uh, they need to feed a lot in, during the first year. It's the main uh, growing time for them. Unfortunately, most of them don't make the first year. Only about a quarter make it through the first year. And a um, very interesting phenomenon that we see in sea otters is that the mother takes care of the dead calf after he died. Usually in mammals, when the calf died, they just leave them. But in this, because the bond is so strong, she tries to keep maintaining uh, the calf for a few days after they've been dead.
0: That determination, doing something kind of crazy for your offspring, well, it all sounds kind of familiar.
2: All I know is that it was the right idea at the time. The minute that I saw the two of them together, I knew it was right.
0: So... Karen and Angkor actually grew up... Like twins. And was there any difference in the way that you felt towards Angkor, who was your biological son, and the way you felt towards Karen, who was adopted?
2: I think it took me a couple of days of nursing her and and realizing that her mother wasn't going to walk through the door and say, I've made a mistake, I want her back. And then she became my daughter, our daughter. In my heart, I don't think that there's ever been any difference since that moment.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I
0: asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation.
1: They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, What the f***
0: are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Act 2. Tzfat. If you're just joining us now, we're telling the story of Enid. After her sixth child, Encore, was unexpectedly born with Down syndrome, she decided together with her husband, Stan, to adopt another baby with Down syndrome, Karen. In Fairbanks, Alaska, where they all lived, it wasn't easy to raise two toddlers with special needs. They didn't really have a good support system. So Enid and Stan began searching for a new, perhaps more accommodating, community. They started off by visiting these Christian agricultural communes, where people with special needs are integrated into host families. They even found one place they really liked in Minnesota, but they were rejected because they had two special needs kids of their own. And at least this is what Enid thinks, because they were Jewish. They didn't really know where to turn next.
2: So I joked with my husband and I said, well, heck, if Minnesota doesn't want us, why don't we just go live on a kibbutz in Eretz Israel? You know, if we lived in a kibbutz and they didn't have a car or they worked in the library or they worked in the laundry, I mean, that could be a full life for them. And I thought that it could also be a safe life for them.
0: Enid contacted Kobi Sharon. He was the Jewish agency's immigration representative in Northern California.
6: I got a a phone call from uh, Chaya to my office in Oakland. Uh, in which she told me that she want to make Aliyah to Israel. And I asked, from where are you? And she said, from Fairbanks, Alaska. Oh, great. It's far away. Enid told Kobe that a few other Jewish agency representatives had turned her down the minute they heard about Ankor and Kirin. I guess that uh, people thought, why do we need uh, such a family that will cost the country so much money? And uh, it's better that we'll s- they will stay in uh, Alaska and America will pay the money for them. But I thought uh, the other way. I told her, listen, uh, the Down syndrome for me, it's not a problem. Uh, I just have one condition that uh, I'm not making a Leah over the phone. You must come yourself to uh, San Francisco and uh, interview in San Francisco. And she said, okay, we're coming. In the end, rather than have all the kids schlepped to California,
0: Kobe came to them in Alaska.
6: The night we arrived was a snowstorm, and the temperature was down to uh, minus 40. I was dressed uh, the most uh, warm that I could, and it was uh, sneakers and a jacket. And when they saw me in the airport, they, they laughed at me. But it was a, a, a magic night. It was a Aurora Borealis night, and it was amazing.
0: Once he got used to the freezing cold and green skies, Colby started to get to know Enid, Stan, and the kids. He tried to warn them about all the challenges of making aliyah, the cultural differences and language barriers that need to be overcome. But Enid, who had never visited Israel before, Told him that.
2: I love Israel like a mother who loves her unborn baby. Even though she's never seen him, she just knows intuitively that she loves him. That's how I love Israel.
6: You know, when, when you're looking at Chaya, she, she's different. She, she has a special light. And I fell in love with the family. I mean, this couple is amazing. And uh, together they wanted to make Aliyah, and I felt that uh, they can make it in Israel. And they can do together with their special kids, the special needs kids, they can do good in Israel. Once
0: Kobe gave the green light, Stan, the Catholic salmon fisherman from Alaska, was sent to Israel on a reconnaissance mission. It was
2: nineteen ninety four. So um Stan went with our friend who had lived in Kibbutz Deganya. They went from kibbutz to kibbutz, asking if they would be willing to take a family with two special needs children. No kibbutz wanted us. They all said, we do very well with our problem children. We don't need anybody else's problems. Thank you very much. Bye.
0: But despite all these rejections, something pretty amazing happened. Stan fell in love with Israel.
2: I remember that he called me, and he told me that none of the kibbutzim wanted us. You know, it was like a big, big rejection. And then Stan said, but you know what, Chaya? We're going to come anyway. And not only that, I want to convert. And I didn't know what to think at that point, you know? (laughs) It was like... And he had gone to this big Rav in uh, Yerushalayim, Rav Sam Kassin, and he said to him, don't worry about the kids with Down syndrome and don't worry about the three older kids that don't want to come. You're just going to come and you're going to see miracles and wonders. And that was the mantra that we took with us when we went to Eretz Israel.
0: So in August of 95, the whole family packed up their belongings into 16 boxes and moved to Israel. But with all the excitement of A New Beginning... It wasn't an easy step for Enid. Her three older children from her first marriage decided that they were going to stay in Alaska and finish high school. Enid felt torn, but she was convinced that this was the right thing for Encore, who was four, and Keren, who was just three.
2: So we came to the Merkas Klita, the absorption center in Sfat.
0: How did you end up in Sfat, of all places?
2: Well, I think because we came from Alaska, they sent us to the most northern absorption center, which happens to be in (laughs) Tzfat, and they put us in uh, Building 9, and uh, now we live in Building 11.
0: Here's a few things you should probably know about Tzfat. One, it's one of the so-called four holy cities of Judaism. Two, it's a major center of Kabbalah. Even Madonna hung out here in 2009. And three, nothing in Israel really qualifies as being remote, but, well, Tzfat comes pretty close. Despite all that holiness around them, it wasn't easy for the Ben Baruchs to adjust. Everything was new, including, by the way, their names. Keren remained Keren, but Ankor was now a Vihai. Enid's new name was Chaya, and Stan, going all the way, I guess, became Israel.
3: Almost uh, overnight, their lives changed from living in a large, beautiful home in the middle of a forest to a two bedroom apartment in the middle of an 80 family apartment building. So we all adapted the best we could, but it took its toll in some ways.
0: Chania el has been one of Chaya's closest friends ever since she moved into the neighborhood. She still remembers when the family showed up with their kids.
7: Look, Tzfat is the town of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism. And in Hebrew, Kabbalah also means to accept. And Tzfat, well... It's really an accepting place. So, no, we didn't see them as anything unusual or anything. They're just a different kind of family.
0: But Israel and Chaya don't remember quite as rosy a reception.
2: Yisrael would put one baby on his back and one baby in his hands, and he would go outside in the street and he would go walking, and people would actually cross the street so as not to catch whatever the kids had.
0: During those early days, Israel was also converting to Judaism. Chaya didn't have to convert, but still, the whole process was just as dramatic for her.
2: So I thought we were going to be like Kipa Suga, which is knit Kipa, which is modern Orthodox, I guess, and uh, I could be able to read Harry Potter and take regular books out of the library, and Yisrael, which I do, <laughs> but um, Israel became more and more religious. Uh, what we call Black Hat around here, or Ultra-orthodox. Um, I think that's, uh, that's just where his soul kind of resonated.
0: Israel started studying at a Sephardi yeshiva in town. That's when his wardrobe grew darker and the rabbi pictures appeared on the walls. At this point, I guess I could tell you that Chayan Israel gradually settled down and lived happily ever after. Basically, that's true and and makes for a nice little story. You know, the one about an outdoorsy couple from Alaska who have a baby with Down syndrome, adopt another one, move from minus 40 degrees to the center of Kabbalah and Stan, the blue-eyed Catholic fisherman, ends up as an ultra-Orthodox yeshiva bucher. But when it comes to the specifics of how they found their way, things get a little more complicated. One day... After two years at the absorption center, something happened which completely upended the Ben Baruch's life. Again, here's their neighbor, Hannah Levy.
8: And one day we were hanging out the laundry, as we usually did, you know, with all the kids and stuff. And we were talking to one another across the clothesline. And I would just heard from a friend of mine that there was a, a little baby with Down syndrome that had been abandoned in the Safed Hospital, hospital. So, you know, we were hanging out the laundry and talking, and I said to her, you know, Chaya, did you hear there's a baby being abandoned uh, with Down syndrome? She was like, why hadn't anybody told me about this baby? Like, I'm on the way there, like, we got to save her. I looked, and she wasn't there anymore. She'd gone. <laughs> she just disappeared. I was like, Hiya, Chaya? <laughs> and she just wasn't there, you know. She just ran straight to the hospital to see what's going on.
0: The baby girl Chaya ran to see was a month old and didn't have a name. She had been born with Down syndrome, and when she was just two days old, her biological parents deserted her in the hospital. They told all their friends and family she had died. Wait, so you're saying that in Israel, parents can have a child? Yes. With, with special needs? Mm-hmm. And leave the hospital without the child?
2: Yes. The social workers like to give the parents a month or two to really decide if this is what they actually want, but...
0: And- Where's the child in the meantime?
2: So the child in the meantime is in the hospital alone. Alone. Right. He doesn't have a mother or a father there 24-7. And um, the nurses will take care of them, and they'll feed them, and they'll change their diapers. But every eight hours, it's a different face, and there's nobody that's consistent for that child. Chaya
0: and started coming to the hospital every day for a whole month to sit with the little baby. It was Chanukah and they named her Shalhevet, which means flame. They also began talking about taking her home with them. This, of course, required the approval of child services.
2: So they told us that we could take her home, but we could only take her home temporarily. Within the first year and a half, they were going to look for a better family than us to um, adopt her. The welfare department felt that because we already had two special needs children that we couldn't possibly handle a third. So uh, we took her home, and I used to cry every single night because I didn't know if tomorrow they would come and they would take her away, and I wouldn't know where she was because adoption is closed here in Israel. So.
0: Um, and, and what did Avichai and Kerem think about you bringing another little baby home?
2: Well, it was like their sister. I mean, they they bonded to her. We have gorgeous pictures of Avichai holding her and Karen feeding her a bottle. Chaya
0: and Israel weren't allowed to officially adopt Chalhevet, but they were recognized as a foster family, which is a different legal category.
2: It was like a bone to a dog. They would give us guardianship for a year, for two years. When she was finally eight years old, we finally got guardianship over her.
0: So for eight years, you actually didn't know if she was going to continue living with you? Yeah. And did you meet her parents here in Svat?
2: So we know who they are, um, and I think possibly they know who we are, but in the 16 years that she's been with us, they have never come to visit her. I have a friend who knows the biological mother of Shalhevet, and so once I asked her if she would want um, some pictures, an album of pictures of Shalhevet, and she said, Chaya, no, I don't think so. I don't think that would help her.
0: So all their friends still think that their daughter died in the hospital?
2: Well, for them, that's what happened. I mean, that's how they handled it.
0: With five little kids running around the house, Chaya and Israel had their hands full. But apparently, full is a relative concept.
2: So about eight years ago, we heard about this baby um, whose biological mother was very young. She was 20 years old. She was a single mom. And his he had Down syndrome. His esophagus wasn't attached to his stomach. He was going to need open heart surgery. He's being fed by a a peg in his stomach, and he had meningitis. And when (laughs) I,
0: it's almost like a like a joke. This list of uh, problems (laughs) that we had, you know. That's
2: right. (laughs) Um, Someone came to the door, and she told me about the baby again for the third time. And Yisrael said to me, "So, so why aren't you going?"
3: So she looks at me and she said the most amazing thing. She said to me, she said, what happens if I go to the hospital and I come to love this little guy? So I looked at her and I said, that's it? That's all that it is? (laughs) I said, you're going to go to the hospital. Put your jacket on and go now. So she put her jacket on. And she went to the hospital.
2: The first time I actually saw Oli, he gave me this look that either said, you know, lady, either you're going to save me or I'm checking out. He had like seven tubes and three wires off of him. It was like pretty pitiful. An hour volunteering became two hours, became 24 hours. I just never came home after that, pretty (laughs) much. Um, I would uh, be home when the kids came home from school and then go back when they were asleep. I remember... uh, Saying to the nurses, I really like your hotel here. You have unlimited hot water and fresh sheets. And they said, yeah, Chaya, but you're sleeping with another guy. (laughs) And uh, they would find me in the morning. I would be in the crib with Ori, you know, sleeping right next to him. And that lasted for about six months.
0: During this time, Chaya Israel got it down to a system. One would be at home with the kids, the other at the hospital. Nights, weekends, holidays... For half a year, they hardly saw each other. And what did that do to your relationship with Yisrael all this time that you didn't see him at all?
2: Well, we joked and we said, well, it's a good thing we're in our 40s and not in our 20s.
0: (laughs) In a repeat of the Shalhevet story, once Ori was strong enough to be released from the hospital, Chaya wanted to take him home with her.
2: So then the welfare department came in and they said, nope, he's so fragile, he has to go into an institution.
0: As you can imagine, Chaya immediately sprang into action.
2: So I called the institution that... Ori was supposed to go into. And I, I didn't lie to them. I didn't say I was a social worker. I just said, well, we have this three-month-old baby with Down syndrome. Can you tell me about your facility? And it turns out that there were 100 special needs babies in this facility. He would have been the youngest. There wasn't a doctor on call 24 hours on the premises. And, and I thought, do they want this kid to die?
0: But despite Chaya's investigative findings and a joint petition by her, Israel, and Ori's 20-year-old biological mother who really wanted him to be with the Ben Baruchs, the welfare authorities were determined to place Ori in the institution.
2: And I remember screaming at God in the hospital, saying, how could you do this to me? How could you let me get close to this baby? Know who I am, what I am, and what do I believe in? Get me close to this baby so that I fall in love with him, and now you want to take him away? And... Everybody told us that we, there was no chance that we were going to get Ori because if the State of Israel Welfare Department wanted to put him in an institution, then that's where it was going to be.
0: They hired a Einav Malka, a lawyer from Tzfat, and petitioned the court to get custody.
7: We came into the courtroom with butterflies in our stomachs. We were full of fear, full of prayers. The proceedings weren't simple at all.
0: Both sides made their arguments, and then the judge weighed in.
2: The judge said that it's a lot easier to put a baby in a home and then put him in an institution if it doesn't work out.
0: The Welfare Department's representatives immediately jumped out of their chairs and said,
2: But Your Honor, have you ever been in one of our marvelous institutions? And the judge said, yes, I have. I'm a father of a special needs child, and my daughter is in an institution. When I heard that, I said, Wow, (laughs) this. I'm talking to a father. We're going to get the baby. And my lawyer thought, Oh no, if he put his daughter in an institution, then that's where he feels special needs children should go.
7: But he surprised us all. He said even the best possible institution isn't as good as a foster family. It was so touching. We all felt that something really special was happening. I
2: really think that God was watching over us, and I think it was a miracle.
7: Everyone started screaming from joy and hugging and kissing each other.
0: After the legal triumph, the hard work began. Chaya Israel took Ori home, and a few months later, he needed to have open-heart surgery. Now, I know this is starting to sound barely credible, but while Chaya was in the ICU at Schneider Hospital with Ori, she saw, in the tiny bed right next to him, yep, another abandoned baby with Down syndrome. This time, even Chaya realized that it was too much for her. But she got on the phone and started to look for a family to adopt her. A few days later, she bumped into Enav, the lawyer, in Tzfat's market. She told her the whole saga, and Enav said, okay, so, so we'll take her. And Enav wasn't the only one. Chana Levi, the neighbor who had told Chaya about Shalhevet while they were hanging the wet laundry, also adopted a special needs child, Nathan Shai. Here's Chana.
8: Nathan Shai was the is the greatest thing that ever happened to us. Like unbelievable, nothing can describe it. It's all thanks to Chaya. Like she got us into it. We're still there. Since then, we we took on another child who's also like six years old right now with special needs.
0: These were the informal beginnings of the organization Chaya would eventually establish. Birkat HaDerech or Blessing of the Way. It finds foster homes for special needs children who have been abandoned. People from all over Israel started contacting her. Some were parents who wanted to give their special needs babies up for adoption. And others were families looking to adopt. Chaya became sort of a matchmaker. One of the families who turned to Chaya through the organization, the Haredi family, told her that six days earlier they had given birth to a baby with Down syndrome. They didn't want to leave her in the hospital, but simply couldn't take her home. They already had nine other children, and the rabbi told them to put the baby up for adoption. Chaya asked that they bring her to Tzfat instead. When she arrived, it turned out she had not only Down syndrome, but also cystic fibrosis. Chaya called her Nechami. She was her tenth child but she only stayed with Chaya Israel seven months. Chania El-Gazi, Chaya's friend, remembers.
7: What a beautiful child. I'm going to start crying now. A real-life doll. You never see babies like her, special or regular. Such beauty. She had this angelic face. And I'm not usually flowery. But then suddenly, yep, just like that, she was gone.
2: She passed away from a meningococcal meningitis that very, very quickly killed her.
0: Wow. Here at home?
2: Yeah. In my bed with me.
3: I think of all the things that we've been through, Losing her was the toughest, you know.
0: The truth is that everything you heard up until now about Chaya Israel and their ten children, five of whom have Down syndrome and four are adopted, was just the background to the story that caught our attention to begin with. There's one final twist, and here it is. Act three. Karen and Avichai. Just to remind you, Avichai is Chaya and Israel's biological son, the one who was born with Down syndrome in Fairbanks and kicked off this entire unusual journey. And Karen is the first baby Chaya adopted to be a twin to Avichai.
2: Avichai's bar mitzvah was the same time that uh, was Karen's bat mitzvah, so they, we took them to a hotel in Yerushalayim, and we thought it was going to be really fancy. And Yisrael and I took the kids to the kotel, Yisrael took Avichai to the men's side, and I took the girls to the women's side, and Avichai came back, and he said, <laughs> I davened that Karen would be my bride. And I thought he was totally pulling my leg. <laughs> so I looked at Karen, I said, "Haha, he wants to be your chatan, he wants to be your bridegroom. And she looked at me as if to say, Mom, you just don't get it, do you? And I had always anticipated marrying my son with Down syndrome to a woman with Down syndrome, and my daughter with Down syndrome to a man with Down syndrome. But I never thought that they would be married one to each other.
0: I'm pretty sure quite a few of you are feeling uncomfortable right about now. Sure, they aren't biological siblings, but still, Chaya breastfed them together, and they grew up as brother and sister. You're not alone. Even some of their closest friends were kind of weirded out. Here's
7: Chania. I wasn't comfortable with the idea. I kept on saying to Chaya, but they're siblings. They're siblings. And she said, but they aren't. As much as we think of them as brother and sister, they really aren't.
0: Chaya came to understand their relationship with her particular blend of pragmatism and compassion.
2: Everybody needs a life partner. Even if my child was a homosexual, I'd be looking for a life partner for them, too. And gay goes into hate, you know. But for five years, I, I kept quiet. I thought maybe he'd fall in love with somebody else or whatever. And then one day, Karen brings home a black dress from a secondhand store that the school gave her. And uh, she tried it on. And I don't particularly like my daughters wearing just black. I think it's a little morbid. She put it on. And Avichai saw her and he said, wow, wow, wow. And she blushed. And I said to her, well, let's pass this dress on. And she said, no, he likes me in it. And that's when I started to see that the relationship was not just brother and sister. That there was something way, way deeper than that. And then any time that they went to a wedding or a bar mitzvah, they would come home and like an old couple, they would sit down and they'd say... Well, at our wedding, we're going to have a white tablecloth with blue runners. And at our wedding, our own parents is going to do the catering. And then in our wedding, I'm going to have a white dress with a, a veil like this. And and I knew that they were just totally serious about this. There was no way I could talk them out of it.
0: And did you try?
2: Um, no. Once I made the switch in my mind that he really loved her and he re- and she really loved him, then there really wasn't any other option.
8: Ever since they were young, ever since they, were, they grew up together, they understood one another.
0: That's Hannah, the neighbor.
8: They were there for one another. They had challenges that they faced together and went through together. And I don't think there's another couple in the whole world that can be more, more compatible. Like, they just completely understand one another. She
2: knew exactly what she was getting into, and he loved her so much. Then why not? So once he got really, really angry, and not at her, but he just got really, really angry, and he wasn't pleasant to be around. And uh, I said to her, are you sure you want to get married to him? <laughs> and she just said to me, she kind of looked at me, and she said, of course, Mom, I love him.
0: <laughs> but as Enav the lawyer, explains, not everything was that simple.
7: It was obviously a bit strange, hard to grasp. And people began asking questions like, in terms of halacha, was this even allowed? And where would this relationship lead? I mean, would they be able to have kids? How would they manage on a daily basis? You know, safety at home, electricity, gas, everything. (laughs) <laughs>
0: Chaya and Israel could answer some of these questions themselves, but on certain matters, specifically those pertaining to Jewish law, they needed advice. They consulted a whole slew of rabbis, including Shmuel Eliyahu, the chief rabbi of Tzfat. If he didn't sanction it, it would be a no-go as far as they were concerned. He told them that there were basically two separate halachic issues. The first was a matter of a brother and sister getting married even if they aren't blood relatives. Here's Rabbi
4: Eliyahu.
0: When they aren't biological siblings, then
5: halachically there's no problem. Whoever knows Solomon's Song of Songs knows the verse, My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister,
0: my darling, my dove, my flawless wife. Okay, check. But the second matter was more complicated. In Judaism, he explains, a rabbi marrying a couple has to make sure that they fully understand the meaning of the marital contract they're entering. Rabbi Eliyahu met with Avichai and Keren a bunch of times, had long conversations with them, and ultimately delivered his verdict. They fully understood what a wedding is.
5: They wanted each other. It was clear. It was just clear that they had deep feelings for each other, that they loved each other. That they had thoughts about spending life together. And from that place, they could connect to the concept
0: of marriage. So they went ahead with it.
2: And when she put on that wedding dress, she was just amazing. And she started flirting with him. She was just so, so beautiful and so happy
0: everyone showed up at the wedding, all the many friends who had been following the Ben Baruch's on their winding journey. Here's
7: Arbaim. It was the early evening, and the sun began to set. Suddenly, the place was full. All the kids from Karen and Abihai school, the teachers, the rabbis, the principal, we all felt as if we were marrying off our own child. It was as if we were all floating in air. We didn't even touch the ground.
2: Vijay
8: and Karen's wedding was the most amazing wedding I've ever been to in my life. It was spiritual, it was real, it was interesting, it was uh, adventurous, it was everything you can imagine, like unbelievable.
6: It was so uh, touching, moving. We had tears in our eyes uh, to see this wedding.
0: Kobi, the Jewish agency representative who had helped them make Aliyah, was also there and pointed out the most obvious benefit of this kind of a wedding.
6: It was funny because, you know, you have a wedding and you don't have the other side of the bride or the broom because they were both sides Chaya and (laughs) Israel. So it went so smooth, and uh, it's a great idea for families who have fights about who will pay for what. Rabbi Eliyahu married them.
5: We could barely hide the tears witnessing such nobility. One of the most touching moments was that the groom, Abichai, didn't understand that he had to wait for the chuppah to love the bride. For him, it was like, hey, we're already here. That's it. Uh, So he kind of uh, broke the order of the ceremony, but it was fine.
0: (laughs) In Jewish weddings, right after the chuppah, the actual ceremony underneath the kind of canopy, the couple go to a cheder to be alone for a few minutes and in the
2: Avichai asked Karen, so how was it? And she said, I cried. And he answered her, I also did.
0: Chaya and Israel rented out another apartment in their building, exactly one floor below them, for the young couple.
2: So right after we came back from the wedding, everybody was like exhausted. So what does Avichai and Karen do? They take all of her stuff, her bedding, her clothes, her everything, and they move down to the apartment at like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning.
0: (laughs) And ever since, they live down there together. The kitchen, so as not to complicate matters in terms of kashrut is milchik, or dairy. But other than that, they lead a more or less normal lifestyle of a newlywed couple.
2: Her closets are probably more orderly than mine. Um, I taught them how to work the washing machine and and the dryer, and she she hangs clothes also better than I do. And um, the school taught them how to go food shopping, so they make a list. She's much Karen's much better at at writing than Avi Chai, but she's much shyer. So like if they go into a store, and she doesn't know where the soup nuts are. She won't ask anybody, but what will he do? He'll say, my wife needs the soup nuts. Where are all the soup nuts?
0: <laughs> that question that Einav, the lawyer, asked about whether or not Keren and Avichai can live independent lives seems to have been answered.
2: When the kids are in their apartment, generally I don't go into their apartment at all. I don't wake them up. I don't tell them when to get dressed. I don't tell them when to go to sleep. And they manage to get up and out of bed in the morning just like anybody else, slowly, slowly, we learned how to give them more and more independence. On Chagim, or on the holidays, or on Shabbat, I need to promise Avichai that I'm going to do something special. I'm going to cook something special for him, like a barbecue or something, because otherwise, they go to, they're invited to so many different people's houses that I have to kind of bribe them to come home. He calls me his mother-in-law at this point.
0: His mother-in-law?
2: Yes. Hamuti. I'm his Hamuti. Because I'm his wife's mother so i'm his mother-in-law well i guess he needs a mother-in-law at some level
0: (laughs) there was one pretty obvious question that i wanted to ask but then again i wasn't really sure if it was appropriate to talk to an ultra-orthodox mom about her kid's sex life so sorry to ask but did you talk to them about sex and of course chaya didn't mind at all
2: yeah um we talk to them slowly. I have an atlas, a birth atlas, and some other things that I pictorially show them what to do, but Karen goes to the mikvah, and um, when they come back, I, I can't tell you that there's absolutely 100% been consummation of the marriage, but there's certainly lots of hugs and lots of kissing, and they really, really love each other, and they really, really care about each other. 99% of the men with Down syndrome are born sterile, so that means they can't be fathers, but that doesn't mean that they don't need a hug in the middle of the night in the middle of the day Um, I think everybody needs that and I remember Abichai and Karen have told me that they're praying for um, a Ben Zachar a firstborn son and uh, I said to them well not every couple has children he said don't worry mom we're still praying (laughs) (laughs) we're still praying for one like we know mom but you know forget it
0: And that's it. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we'd love any help in spreading the word. So don't forget to like us and share the episode on Facebook, where you can find us under the name Israel Story. Follow us on Twitter at, at Israel Story, and go to tabletmag.com, where you can find all the English episodes on Vox Tablet. You'll also find a super touching video clip of the wedding, where you'll see Chaya, Israel, and the couple. And of course, if you speak Hebrew... Please tune in to our Hebrew episodes. We're currently in the middle of our second season on Galeit Zal, but you can hear everything from the very beginning on our site, IsraelStory.org, or on SoundCloud, just search for Israel Story. And as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and comments, so post on our Facebook page or email us at contact at IsraelStory.org. We're going to end our episode today with an Israel Moment, sent to us by Gidon Kleonsky from Madison, Wisconsin. A few years ago, he recorded this emphatic invitation to the Mashiach, the Messiah, in Tzfat on the Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah. Thanks, Gidon. And just reminding the rest of you that we want to hear your Israel moments. So if you have a piece of tape from Israel that you really love, send it to us. Again, it's contact at israelstory.org. And we'll air our favorite submissions. As always, a ton of people help on these episodes. Thanks today to Kara Ferrantino, Lois Beckett, Daniela Cheslo, Stephen Black, Kitra Kahana, Jody and Gary Redoran, Rina Castelnovo, Meira Weiss, Norman Gilliland, Basia Schechter, and Avi Heller. Thanks also to Charles Monroe Kane, Kirill Owen, and all the team at Wisconsin Public Radios to the best of our knowledge. Our executive producer is the wonderful Julie Subrin, Amishi Harman, and Israel's Story is produced with my dear friends Yochai Metal, Roy Gilron, and Shai Satran, with help from Paul Ruest, Pike Malinowski, and Anne Hepperman. Join us next episode, and meanwhile, yalla
2: bye.
6: <laughs>
4: Yes, I'll leave. Let's hear you. Can we like, oh, let's Gamani, talk, Boch, and Mohammed's